This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Arthur Snell. We often hear about the current crisis in Western politics is caused by people who have little to hope for, left behind economically and culturally. The worker in a post-industrial rust belt seeing their job move offshore to China. The millennial who knows they'll never be able to afford to buy a house in the town they were born in. But what if the reason for our current malaise were simpler, but also more profound? Might it be down to a lack of virtue among our citizens, a crisis of narcissism? Tom Nichols, an author and academic at the US Naval War College, has noticed that the people tearing apart liberal democracy are mostly white, middle class and comfortable. Is the greatest threat to Western security a bored middle class, not the desperate left behind? Well, Tom, thanks so much for joining us. I've had a advanced copy of Our Own Worst Enemy, which I found very, very interesting, very, very relevant both to our situation in in the UK and and most obviously to your own in the US. Where I'd like to start perhaps is, for those who haven't had the benefit of reading the book, if you could sort of characterise what you feel are the, the main points of the book, and then we can sort of dive into some of those. Sure. The main point of the book is that democracy is in trouble. And the reason the reason it's in trouble is because of the behavior and attitudes and collapse of norms among citizens of democracies themselves. This was in contrast to explanations that were starting to arise in the 90s and the 2010s that somehow the weakening of democracy in the United States and in Europe and in other parts of the world was somehow due to economics or to some kind of larger cultural change. I just found those explanations difficult and unsatisfying because I, when trying to write this book, I couldn't make those explanations work. I mean, I think we're all working on the same thing. A lot of folks who write about democracy are all trying to figure out why the great third wave of democracy seems to be in retreat. The, the first, of course, being in the 19th century and then the defeat of fascism and the fall of communism, this large wave of democratization that we saw in the 20th century now seems to be on the retreat. And I decided to hold up a mirror to the voters themselves. And the underlying argument is that we are a much more narcissistic culture in the developed world. We've gotten used to long periods of peace and prosperity, as counterintuitive as that may sound to some folks. And we have gotten used to very high levels of standards of living including constantly being hyper-connected to each other, which turns out to be a pretty bad thing for maintaining a democracy. One of the things, I guess, in a way that, that is most striking about your thesis is you're not giving us a free pass. You're not saying, well, it's very difficult because young people can't afford to live in the same neighborhoods as their parents, which is certainly a, an argument you hear a lot about in the UK. You're not talking about uh, deindustrialization and all the dislocation that that causes. 
to quote from your book, liberal democracy depends on knowledge and virtue. I suppose before we come on to the knowledge and the virtue, is it worth just interrogating some of those points? Clearly, the world of the 21st century, particularly if you live in North America or Western Europe, is a world of great personal safety, mostly general physical security, all manner of things that even for people born in the mid 20th century is, is a substantial change. But there are things that are difficult. I, I was looking today, as I read your book, life expectancy has been falling both in the United States and in the UK, I think for the last decade. That suggests that, you know, is, is it possible that we aren't necessarily delivering on this sort of great promise that, that we thought we were, were offering? Well, there's a couple of points here. First, um, let me make an empirical point which is that the people that are the source of illiberal behavior, the kind of people storming the U.S. Capitol, the kind of people voting for populist and illiberal parties in Europe and Turkey and Brazil and other places, this is not a revolt of the poorest. This is not a revolt of young people in the streets who can't afford to live in Brooklyn or Queens. This is not a revolt of dirt poor folks across America and remember, in America, a lot of the very poorest folks are people of color. They are not part of that movement. This is overwhelmingly a white middle class movement. And so the evidence for that thesis, and this is part of what I wrestled with when writing the book, it's just not there. It doesn't mean that these aren't real problems, but it means the people experiencing these problems are not the people that are tearing apart liberal democracy. Ironically, it's people who are actually reasonably well off. And as I point out in the book, this is a throwback to Eric Hoffer's warning in 1951 that the greatest threat of an authoritarian mass movement comes not from the very poorest, but from a bored middle class, from people that have kind of lost any sense of purpose and start looking for holy crusades. And I think that's one of the reasons you're seeing the decline of democracy being intertwined with conspiracy theories, because conspiracy theories make life more interesting. And, you know, you look at the people, for example, uh, who are being arraigned and, and now pleading out in, these, in the January 6th riot, overwhelmingly, these are not young and unemployed or poor people. These are professionals. These are dentists and accountants and real estate salesmen and people who had the money to buy plane tickets to Washington, chartered jets to Washington, buying a lot of expensive military gear, paramilitary gear. This is now the collapse of norms among a bored global middle class. And you find this in other countries where anti-establishment populist movements are actually being funded. I think it was Martin Wolf of the Times who called them Pluto-populists, that these are, in fact, movements being led by immensely rich people. Donald Trump, the five-star movement, Johnson himself, you know, and the Brexiteers, who, as Ann Applebaum pointed out so uh, caustically, you know, behind closed doors, laughing about Brexit and then, you know, walking out in public and waving British flags at people. One of the things it it's tempting to sort of fall into, and, and I don't think you are doing this, but I'd be interested in your views, it's tempting to fall into a kind of response, which is that, well, we need life to be a bit tougher, you know, and, and, and we, we talk about the great generation that fought World War II and compare that with the as, as you rightly observe, the sort of absurd narcissism of the modern age. But I don't think you're not arguing that the modern West needs some kind of cataclysm in order to set itself right, are you? No. And in fact, 
in the book, I say, look, this is not some sort of, you know, blood and iron argument, which has become increasingly popular with a lot of people on the right wing in America to say, you know, what we really need is a good war with China will, you know, straighten everybody out kind of mentality. Absolutely not. And part of the reason I wrote the book is that I was hoping that people in the democracies would take a look at themselves before something terrible happens. Interestingly enough, I began the book before the pandemic. And the book I wrote before this one was about expertise and the uh, rejection of expertise. And when I wrote that book, I said, well, some sort of disaster usually snaps people out of these kind of anti-expertise, whether it's a depression, whether it's a military conflict, places where you need experts. And I I said at the time, uh, or a pandemic, something that requires, you know, (laughs) medical expertise. What I didn't expect was that even a pandemic could become weaponized as a kind of tool of narcissistic outrage, as it has become here in the United States. I'm not arguing for some sort of national cataclysm, partly because I think it would be immoral to make that argument, but also as a, as a practical matter, I think it's pretty clear it wouldn't work. Yeah, And I think democracy, as I say in the book, democracy is an act of will. I mean, at some point, we're just going to have to look at ourselves and decide to be better people. And I know that's a hard message to put forward. When I started writing the book, one of the folks reviewing an early draft of the project said, I hope we're not left here with moral hectoring. And I said, first of all, I think there's a place for moral hectoring, but I think that perhaps the alternative to some kind of disaster is that we have to start small and start local with projects that people of different political uh, loyalties can, can cooperate on. I think part of the problem is that every time we talk about this, Americans in particular say, well, I would vote to change the Constitution and eliminate the Electoral College. And none of those things are going to happen. They're too big. They're, they're too difficult. That's not how change is affected. One of the areas that you touch on in, in some detail, uh, you know, not surprisingly, is the world of hyperconnected communication, social media, the fact that anyone anywhere can be completely aware of what other people have, how much better it might be, even if, of course, you know, the whole, almost the purpose of social media is to, to project all the good things about your life and, and hide the less positive things. Is there a role, because this feels like a very contemporary question with all the controversy swirling around Facebook, is there a role for governments actually to recognise that this is an incredibly powerful and potentially dangerous tool and regulate it, like we regulate all kinds of other dangerous things? Well, I think the argument about government regulation of places like Facebook tends to bark up the wrong tree. The people who really want to regulate Facebook tend to be people with a lot of political gripes that conservatives think that Facebook is somehow censoring them, which is insane because every week the top 10 sources of content are from far right crazy town commentators. And the people on the left who want to censor Facebook or censor content on Facebook want to set up some kind of gatekeeping for, you know, truth and objectivity, which I think always ends badly. The problem I write about with regard to Facebook and other forms of social, and I love social media. I mean, I'm part, as I say in the book, I'm part of the problem. I mean, I have a half a million Twitter followers, so, you know, I can't take too many shots at social media. My real concern is that the way people use social media is only partly about politics, but it's basically to snoop in on each other's lives and generate 
huge amounts of resentment and envy. It's not a resentment between the plumber and Jeff Bezos. It's between an office manager and another office manager further down the street who, for some reason, has granite countertops. And, you know, people are walking away from these idealized lives they see on Twitter and say, well, okay, clearly, you know, my neighbors are doing better than I am. That means I'm getting screwed. That means democracy is unfair and democracy should go out the window. We have become incredibly petty about this in the book. I don't, I don't know if there's an equivalent of this in Britain, but here in the United States, people, there's even a thing called Zillow addiction where people go on this website about real estate prices. And of course, it's full of, and I just sold a house recently and I did it myself. You can literally take virtual tours of every house that's on sale all around you. And I mean, you can spend all day going in and out of other people's homes. That's really bad for you. There are people whose houses are, and I quote one of them in the book, whose houses are not on the market and will never be on the market, but they admit that every week they just look around and say, "Um, what are my neighbors worth? That is about the least virtuous thing you can do in a free society is just walk up and down the street, peering in people's windows and saying, how are you doing relative to me? Are you making more money? Do you have a nicer house? Maybe our equivalent of that is the fact that the the Daily Mail, which you're probably familiar with, you know, is a right-wing, slightly populist newspaper. Whenever it prints a story about any person who has been in some way humiliated in public, they always say the value of their home, as if it's kind of, you know, this terrible person whose home is worth half a million pounds, you know, kind of (laughs) emphasizes that we should not only hate this person, but envy their ill-gotten wealth. It's a weird trope in British public life, so it's definitely not unique to America. We know that social media is addictive. We know that internet use is addictive. We, we carry these miniature computers in our pockets that give you instant access to all of human knowledge, but we end up filtering it just to, you know, as you say, take a virtual tour around your neighbor's property. What are the things that we can do? Because it's, it's a bit like it, there's a risk that we, we're just people saying, well, people should stop drinking alcohol. Well, throughout human history, people have tended to do that, and one or two societies have stopped it. But basically, it's a feature of human existence. So it's probably not going to go away. Well, it's not impossible. And another debate that is common to the developed world, it's like saying, we've never had more food available to us, and yet we are all fat and diabetic because the food we choose to eat is mostly junk food. You know, when I was a boy, we watched movies like Soylent Green, where we thought we would, I'm sorry to ruin the movie for anybody, but we thought we'd be literally cannibalizing each other because the world would be so overpopulated and and starving. And yet here we are in 2021, still subsidizing food so that farmers won't go broke. It's the same question. What do you do? Do you just go around and shut down fast food joints? Do you do what the mayor of New York tried to do and say you can't sell sugary drinks and in, in you know that are larger than 32 ounces? I once rather whimsically, knowing that it could never be done, I, I once did a thought experiment about what would happen if you started metering high-speed internet access the way they do on airplanes. And if ordinary people had to pay for their internet time by the hour, I think you would kill off half the conspiracy theories in, in America because people aren't going to pay five bucks an hour to stare at YouTube videos. Some will, and eventually they'll go broke. I'm not sure what to do. And I'll take issue with you about changing bad habits. And the example I'll use is smoking. I grew up in a generation where doctors smoked in their offices, and we've somehow made that socially unacceptable. I think some of this, and again, I I fear that I'm coming back to moral hectoring, 
But some of this has to be a matter of turning to our fellow citizens and saying, I am not going to have a long argument with you about something you saw on YouTube. I said to someone recently who tried to engage me in a conspiracy theory about the election, I said, look, I'm not going to have this discussion with you because it would demean both of us. And it kind of shocked that person that I, I basically said, you bringing this up from the source that you did is the equivalent of, you know, walking into a neonatal ward with a lit cigar. And I'm not going to have it. One area that you don't really talk very much about in your book, but I wonder whether it's relevant, is actually the issue of climate change. Obviously, it's not going to affect everyone equally, that that would be incorrect, but it will affect everyone in certain ways, and it will have impact. Is it possible, I mean, this is perhaps me just hoping for a bigger pandemic, but that would be the cataclysm that makes people sit up and change their behaviours, because it is so universal. It's too gradual, and that debate has become too politicised. And actually, at least here in the United States, to talk about climate change has become yet another one of those tribal signifiers. I don't really think that effective action on climate change comes until we're out of this hyper-tribal phase that we're in. I thought you were going to ask, and uh, because uh, there were there have been some folks who've raised this question with me of saying, well, don't you think that you know there are people turning against democracy because of climate change? But again, I'll just point out that the people turning against democracy are actually the comfortable middle classes. They are not people in underdeveloped countries who are running out of water. They are people who are perfectly comfortable suburbanites in America. This goes back to the same problem, by the way, of, and, and I meant to comment on this when you brought up life expectancy. Life expectancy overall in the United States is not declining. Life expectancy is declining in a particular subset of white Americans who are drinking. And these are, you know, we, we call them deaths of despair now, right? Those deaths of despair were always there. When I was a kid, people drank and smoked and died in their 50s. I would argue that's a transitory effect that's happening here in the United States. It's almost entirely concentrated within four states. Just like climate change and other things, these are not really the sources of what's happening. And that's partly why it was such a frustrating book to write, because I think a lot of people who look at democracy say, these are the people who should be rebelling against democracy, to which I always answer, yes, maybe, and perhaps we could argue about that, but they're not. And if that were the case, then the most anti-democratic elements in the United States would be African-Americans and the very poorest immigrants and the very poorest people of color in the United States. And that is simply not the case. There is something else going on. And here in the United States, I think there is no way to, we shouldn't leave this conversation without talking about race, because this is a heavily racially motivated attack on democracy, not just in the United States, but in other places. I mean, they're political entrepreneurs, and I talk about them quite a bit in the book, particular leaders who are effective at leading public opinion are creating this sense of otherness, which populism always does, right? We're the real people. You're not the real people to the point where, as I point out, there is an anti-Muslim movement in Poland, which of course, maybe Americans never know why that's funny. Maybe a European audience will kind of smile more knowingly at it because there aren't that many Muslims in Poland at all. Yeah. I mean, it's really kind of crazy, you know, but it's yeah. effective to say these other people are the threat to you and to your comfortable life. So therefore, 
you know, we must junk the whole system that allows this to happen. So all of these larger issues, climate change and poverty and life expectancy, I actually think those are issues that won't get dealt with until we are out of this kind of narcissistic wrestling match that we have created for ourselves in the liberal democracies of the United States and the West. Your reflection on Poland reminds me, I live in a part of rural England where there are basically no immigrants. And yet in local elections, you'll have someone running for the, you know, the municipal council who will go on about, well, you know, there's so many immigrants, which is why housing prices are going up. And you say, well, I I literally cannot find an immigrant here. You know, I, I would have to drive an hour to a city where there may be immigrants. It's the same here in the United States where the anti-immigration feeling is sky high in places like Montana right. uh, and Northern New Hampshire and, and you know, Iowa. Yeah. And it's heavily driven by television and by, again, social media, where we think that, you know, oh, these, these caravans are pouring over the border 2,000 miles away and they're 15 minutes from my home. It really, we do have a problem, I think, that the the inability to kind of perceive reality, I mean, forget about virtue for a moment. We now have millions of people, at least here in the United States, who literally have become delusional, who are so detached from reality that it is impossible to have a rational conversation with. There's nowhere to start. And I think that on that, I, I don't want to be, you know, this dark and pessimistic, but I don't think those people are coming back. I think they have climbed very high in the tree and they are not going to be able to climb back down. And I think there's just an issue of demographic change here, that that population is going, they're mostly older people, my age and older, and they, they're just going to have to age out of the population. And, and um, hopefully the younger generation behind them is a little more grounded in basic reality. We want to finish on something of a uplifting note. Now, your, your book is thought-provoking, and you end, of course, with the story of, of Pericles, you know, the great orator of Athens, in a darkly funny way, you note that he died of the plague, um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> which, which seems, you know, it's, it, that's Sorry. a very 2021 way to go. But I guess, you know, if, if, um, if it's not an unreasonable question, if, if you were going to sort of finish on a slightly upward note, what would your sort of concluding point be, both in this conversation, but also in the, the sort of wider argument around this book? Well, one of the things we're learning already, and at the time you and I are having this conversation, we've already seen that the populist government in the Czech Republic yeah. has been voted out of office. Yeah. In some sense, I think Europe is ahead of the United States here, that the populist wave has crested. One of the things we learned is that populists really are terrible at governing. I'm hesitant to say it because I don't want us to rely on the incompetence of the people that would undermine our democracy, but they are staggeringly incompetent. Yes. Donald Trump is the first president not to be reelected in ages here in the United States. Normally, an incumbent president is pretty tough to knock out an incumbent president, but Donald yeah. Trump managed to do it. I guess the positive, try and, I'll try and end on a more uplifting note, because I think the book does end a bit darkly, is that there are more of us who believe in liberal democracy than there are of democracy's enemies. If we band together to vote and to behave responsibly, we can, in fact, carry the day. And the opponents of liberal democracy are basically clowns. They are not good at their job. I mean, you know, we, the, the, the one place where I bristle at comparisons in the 1930s with Stalin and Hitler, these fascist and, and totalitarian movements of the 1930s, they were ruthlessly effective at what they did. Yeah. They were very good at political organizing. They were very good 
um, you know, we focus a lot on Hitler, but you know, Stalin as well, very good at manipulating personnel policies and putting people in the right places and doing all of these things. So far, the people who have tried to undermine liberal democracy are really almost comically bad at this. When it comes to the people who are trying to undermine liberal democracy, let's not fall into the hopeless belief that they are somehow 10 feet tall. These are people who literally, from a political point of view, have trouble tying their own shoes. Because they are not bound by the same norms and beliefs as the rest of us, they can be incredibly dangerous. And so that means that the rest of us have to become more serious, more willing to build coalitions, more willing to accept that we are all on the same side about large issues like the future of democracy and tolerant and secular and law-based government and stop bickering about policies that may well be transitory in the short term. It can be done. There is a, we, we have the power to weather this storm. The question is whether we, the, the people who believe in democracy, whether we are going to be mature and stable and serious enough to cooperate long enough to get through this rough weather. That is, a, I think, a brilliant and, and inspiring place to stop. Tom Nichols, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. And uh, I encourage any listener to, uh, to take a look at your book. You know, I found very thought provoking and, and also very readable. So thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Tom Nichols' book, Our Own Worst Enemy, is published by Oxford University Press. Listeners, thanks for joining us. Remember, there's a new Bunker Daily every Monday, Wednesday and Thursday, plus the weekly panel edition on Tuesdays. And don't forget our weekend editions, including the new Culture Bunker. You can also support us by backing us on Patreon, the crowdfunding network. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out about early episodes, merchandise, discounts for our live shows. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Arthur Snell. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.